Hey there, my name is Ryan Hughley, and I'm lead pastor of Ridgeline Church in Salt Lake City, Utah. Thanks for checking out our podcast. Our goal is to help as many people as possible meet and mature in the Jesus of the Bible. For more information about our ministry, visit our website at ridgeline.church. If you enjoy the podcast, consider subscribing on the platform of your choice. Thanks again for listening, and I pray God's Spirit uses this message to revive you in a fresh way. Well, this morning I want to start by talking about the consuming nature of pain. If you think about it, when something in your life hurts, whether it's physical or emotional, when something in your life hurts, it's hard for it not to be the only thing that you feel, the only thing that you see, and the only thing that you think about. Pain has this way of consuming us. Our first winter here in Utah, I went up to Brighton uh, to snowboard a couple of times. I'd snowboarded one other time in my life, and it had been about 20 years, so naturally I felt like, I'll just jump right back on a board, and this is going to go so well. And uh, if it wasn't for the law of gravity, that would have been completely accurate. But um, unfortunately, as I painfully learned that day, hubris does not help with gravity. And so late one afternoon, I came around a corner, caught an edge, crashed and burned, uh, somehow finding a way to smash myself in the ribs with my own elbow, which just physically, I'm not sure still how that's possible. But it just destroyed. So the, I mean, the good news was it was not a significant injury. The bad news is the pain was so severe that it consumed my, my attention until it healed. So every time I would take a breath, especially if you've ever bruised, bruised anything in your ribs or your abdomen, it's brutal. Every breath you take, every time you cough, every time I laughed, which in our house happens a lot, I felt like someone was like twisting a knife between my ribs. And so as a result, I had a few weeks where it seemed like the pain was the only thing that I could focus on. You see, when something in your life hurts, it's hard for it not to be the only thing that you feel, the only thing that you see, and the only thing that you think about. When something hurts, it consumes you. See, pain has this very unique ability in our lives to uh, demand our attention. And so even if you have an, a moment where your attention drifts somewhere else, it doesn't take much for the pain to pull you back to itself. And so as a result, pain then becomes this lens through which we perceive everything that is happening in our lives. And, and the truth is, I don't think that any of us probably needs to reach too far for an example of this. If you were to really stop and reflect on this year so far, my guess is your thoughts and feelings are largely clouded by just how hard it's been. It is virtually impossible to think about, unless you're having a super different year than the rest of us, <laughs> it is just virtually impossible to think about this year through anything other than the lens of how anxious we've been, how much disappointment we have felt, and how frequently we have found ourselves fighting to maintain any semblance of hope through all of this. And so pain just clouds our perspective on everything. And this is why 1 Peter in general as a letter and our verses this morning in particular are such a gift to us. The, the Apostle Peter was a man who was well acquainted with his fair share of suffering. And, and as a result, he's going to help us reset our perspective on pain and suffering, which is important because pain has a way of distorting our perspective. Some of us right now are very much wrestling with a distorted perspective of who God is, his character and his nature and his plan. 
We're struggling with a distorted perspective on life or on even our relationships with one another. And so Peter wants to help us reset all that. And so uh, here's what he's going to attempt to reset our perspective with. This is our big idea. If you're taking notes, it's this. Momentary suffering, which we're going to learn this morning, is actually what all of our suffering is. Momentary suffering is a small cost when compared with the gift of eternal salvation. Momentary suffering is a small cost when compared with the gift of eternal salvation. So even in your mind this morning, here's, here's what I want you to picture us doing. We're going we're gonna to bring this sort of twisted mess of emotions that are inside of us right now when we think about this year and everything that we're going through. We're going to bring this twisted mess and we're going to bring them to these verses and we are going to ask that the Spirit of God would use these verses to help us think clearly about what it is that we are experiencing and feeling. And so if you have a Bible and you haven't yet, open to 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 3 through 9 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, all the text will be up on the screen. But Peter's going to give us three reminders this morning. And the first reminder is this. Number one, remember what awaits you. If we're going to reset our perspective on pain, that's the first thing we have to constantly remember. Remember what awaits you. Look with me at verse 3. Peter writes this. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his great mercy, he has given us new birth, which if you mark in your Bible, I would circle those two words. Because of his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. So what Peter's doing uh, in these opening verses is he is unpacking the merciful gift of God that is new birth. Now, Peter was not the first person to refer to life with Christ as new birth. In fact, it's actually a theme that is spoken of hundreds of years earlier by the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel 36. But then Jesus, even before Peter, picks up on this theme in John chapter 3. In verse 3, he tells the curious Nicodemus, the Pharisee who came to him by night to inquire of who he was, he says this, he says, truly I tell you, unless someone is born again, so there's that theme again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And so here's why this language of new birth is important for us to really pay attention to. I think that we sometimes forget that what is held out to us by God is not just a new idea that is compelling to us, but what's held out to us is a new life that transforms us. We are talking new desires, new inclinations, new behaviors, new values, and new ambition. And we know this because of how specifically Peter describes all that we are born into by faith. Notice that he says that we are born into a living hope, an inheritance, and salvation. So Peter says that God has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, when we think about the idea of hope, I think it's really critical that we make a distinction between what we tend to mean when we use the word hope and what Peter means here. We tend to confuse hope with mere optimism. And the difference between the two is where they're rooted. See, optimism is primarily rooted in an aspiration, which isn't bad, it's just different. Optimism is more an expression of desire than it is an affirmation of something that we are confident in. So this is what we mean when we say something like, 
I hope the Jazz make it past the first round of the playoffs, okay? That, when we, we say phrases like that all of the time. That is an expression of desire, more than it is an affirmation of what we believe for very good reason. Um, I want them to win. I wish that they would win. I desire that they would win. But those are all aspirational. And so when we use hope like that, and when Peter uses the word hope, we're talking about something very, very different. See, biblical hope actually has a far more deep, and I would argue a far more rational root. Biblical hope isn't rooted in a mere desire or an aspiration. It is rooted in a person with a proven track record. This living hope is rooted in God, specifically who he has, not just who he says he is, though that would, should be enough for us, but who he has actually shown himself to be, what he has actually already done and what he has promised yet to do. And so just so we're crystal clear when we read this word hope, here's my working definition of what it is that Peter's describing here. If you want to make a note of this, hope is a confident belief in a beneficial outcome based on who God is and the plan he's promised. Let me say that again. Hope is a confident belief in a beneficial outcome based on who God is and the plan that he's promised. And here's the chief reason that we have for this hope and why Peter refers to it as a living hope. Notice that Peter points to the resurrection of Jesus as the source of our hope. The resurrection would have been so significant for Peter, and obviously it is equally significant for us, but it was unique for Peter because I want you to think about this. I promise you there was no darker day in Peter's life than the day that he watched with his own eyes when Jesus was crucified. Peter had lived for three years under the teaching and in relationship with Jesus, believing with everything inside of him that he was the hope of salvation, that he was the Messiah, that he was the Savior of the world. And then he watched Jesus die. And no matter how much Jesus, I mean, there's three specific times in each of the Gospels where Jesus predicts to his disciples literally exactly what's going to happen to him. And no matter how clear he was, they never got it. And so when Jesus died, Peter's hope died with him. But then, Peter got to see Jesus resurrected three days later. Like, just think about that. Sometimes, especially the more familiar we get with the things of the scriptures, we just sort of take them for granted. But just think, you've never experienced that. You've never been to a funeral on a Friday and then high-fived that person at dinner on Sunday night. (laughs) But that's exactly what happened to Peter. So just think about what that would have done to him. Peter saw Jesus die, and then he saw him alive. So imagine the way that that concrete experience would have provided him with a deep hope in God's power and capability. If God can do that, what can't he do? And so that's the foundation from which Peter lived and Peter wrote. And so here's the thing. Peter's hope is the living hope of every disciple of Jesus. The exact same God who resurrected Jesus from the dead has promised to redeem every suffering, every hardship, and every ounce of pain that you experience. And that salvation that God guards with his great power is the inheritance 
that awaits all of us who have put our faith in Jesus. And Peter says that that inheritance is three things, imperishable, meaning free of of any amount of death or decay. It's undefiled, meaning it's free from any uncleanness or moral purity, impurity. And it's unfading, meaning it's free from the normal ravages of time. And this is what awaits those of us who have experienced the new birth. And I want you to notice that Peter says that we are being guarded by God's power through our faith. So somehow, God's protective power in our lives works in conjunction with our faith to protect that inheritance that awaits us. And and, and so if you're here this morning and you feel like, well, that's not great news for me because my faith is not doing awesome right now. I mean, I've, I've had a lot of very honest and vulnerable conversations with people as of late that would just say, like, my faith is hanging by a thread. And so I've noticed this weird thing with us. Nowhere in the Bible that I'm aware of does God demand great faith from his people. You ever notice that? Like when Jesus taught on faith, he was like, hey, if you just have the faith the size of a mustard seed, you could say to this mountain, get up and throw yourself into the ocean. Have you ever seen a mustard seed? Probably not really, because first of all, they're almost imperceptible to the human eye, and then also just who's carrying mustard seeds around. (laughs) The point is, it's extremely, Jesus emphasized the smallness of faith necessary. But for some reason, the followers of Christ, we're like so obsessed with big, huge, great faith. And so I say that not because we should not pursue greater and greater faith and trust, but just to encourage those of you who feel like my, my faith is like, mustard seed sized right now. That's enough. It's enough. But we have to have faith that works in conjunction with God's protective power, keeping this inheritance that awaits in front of us. And so the question for us is, will we choose, will we choose this living hope in the God who guards the inheritance of our salvation? Momentary suffering is a small cost when we compare it with the gift of eternal salvation. And if we're going to reset our perspective on pain, we have to remember what awaits us. Now notice, Peter gives us a second reminder. He says this, remember this is momentary. Remember this is momentary. Look at verse 6. He goes on and he says, you rejoice, make note of that word, you rejoice in this, even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief, in various trials. Now, there's an apparent paradox in verse 6, because what Peter does is he places rejoicing in the context of grief, which for most of us probably doesn't compute very well. The, The Greek word that we translate as grief indicates considerable emotional pain. And so most of us don't really have a category for these two things existing in the same space. We have, on the one hand, a category for rejoicing when our circumstances are preferable, and we have a a context for grief when our circumstances are not preferable. But placing rejoicing in the context of grief is paradoxical to us. But the truth is, the way of Jesus is piled full of apparent paradox. I mean, just consider just Jesus teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Like, just think about the Beatitudes that open that in Matthew chapter 5. He says, blessed, another way to translate the word blessed is to translate it as the word happy. They're almost synonymous. Blessed are the poor in spirit, 
Well, that just sounds insane. And that's not even all. He goes on, he says, blessed are those who mourn, which almost sounds dumber. And then just to finish the whole thing off, he says, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. That makes no sense. And that's not even all Jesus says. Jesus goes on and he says, the last will be first. Not sure how that works. He says, those who want to be great in the kingdom of God must become servants of all. See, the way of Jesus is just piled full of apparent paradoxes. And so Peter's just following suit when he describes rejoicing in response to the gift of new birth in the context of deep grief. And so the question that I find myself asking when I read a verse like this is always the question of how. How in the world do we actually rejoice in God for the gift of new birth while we are also consumed with deep grief because of the many trials we experience? That feels to me like one of those things that sounds super spiritual, but in reality are not very practical, maybe even possible in real life. And Christians are notorious for saying things like that. Like, Jesus, take the wheel. Stupid stuff like that, that we say. <laughs> They're like, cool, Carrie Underwood. That sounded really great in the song. It's dumb, and I'm not sure what that means. So it almost sounds like one of those things where you're like, oh, no, I, I guess I sort of understand what, what's being called for, but how practically in real life do we actually do that? And Peter's answer would be perspective. Because notice this very small but significant phrase in the middle of this verse. He says, you rejoice in this even though now for a short time you suffer grief in various trials. Now, one of the ways to read this verse would be reading it as though Peter is minimizing the size and the significance of the suffering we experience. So you could sort of read Peter as saying, man, this really isn't that big a deal. What you're going through has not been happening for too long. It's only going to be for a short time. You guys really just need to toughen up. And if that were the case, then Peter would read like a heartless, disconnected tyrant. But the good news is that's not what Peter's saying. Peter's goal is not to minimize our suffering. His goal is to contextualize it for us. See, because suffering has a way of suffocating our ability to maintain perspective, it often feels as though it's never going to end. So you probably have some hardship and trial and difficulty in your life, and it feels like this has been going on forever. This is never going to end. And that is the perspective that Peter wants to fix here. And, and, and he does so by helping us understand why our perspective on time matters so much. So here's a simple way to illustrate this. My kids and I, most of you know I have three kids. They are uh, 12, 10, and 7. <laughs> I knew that. I was just being funny. I actually forget all the time how old they are. But, uh, but we have very different perspectives, my kids and I, on time. And so I want you to think about, um, like, take my, my seven-year-old son, Lincoln. Lincoln uh, feels like we have lived in Utah forever. And, and, and from, from his perspective, that makes sense to me because he was so young when we lived in Chicago, he barely remembers that. The couple of years we were in North Carolina are, like, becoming more and more a distant memory to him. But, but we've lived here for three years now, and three years is literally almost half of his entire life. So to him, it has almost been his forever. 
Now, when I think about us living here, it feels very different to me. I feel like we sort of just got here. Um, I, this is my home. I feel completely at home here, but there's so much I'm still trying to figure out about, which I feel like no matter how long you live here, there's always things you're trying to figure out about Utah. Um, but there's things I'm trying to get my head around, get comfortable with, get used to, that I'm, I'm still learning all of that. And so my point is that where this certainly feels like home, it, it doesn't feel like I have lived a super long extended season of my life here. So here's the question. What is the difference between our two perspectives? Time. Lincoln's seven and I'm 39. Three years out of seven is a lot. Three out of 39 not so much. And so here's how this relates to our pain. Peter is not trying to downplay the grief that we experience. He's trying to place it in the context of eternity. And so remember, pain consumes us, and especially when it's severe, it's the only thing that we feel and that we can process. And the problem with that is we lose perspective even on time. We forget that as followers of Jesus, eternity awaits us. Eternity is in front of you. We forget that the Bible tells us not just what has happened, but also what will happen. The Bible says, specifically in Revelation 21, that one day Jesus is going to remove all suffering and that pain will be no more. And so it might be impossible for us to truly conceive of, but I just want you to pause for a second and really try to imagine a pain-free eternity. Eternity in front of you. I understand that's impossible to fully conceive of. But imagine, no anxiety. No depression. No physical suffering. None of that like internal stress and tension you feel when there's disruption in a relationship with another person. None of the carrying around that sort of like, oh, I have to have this conversation with a loved one and it's going to be awkward and tense and I have a feeling this is what they're going to say and when they say that, this is how I'm going to respond and we play out all these crazy scenarios, (laughs) driving ourselves mad internally. None of that. That's all suffering. That's all marked by pain. So try to conceive of all of that gone forever. It may be so difficult for us to think of that and to conceive of that now when we are consumed with all of our present suffering, but I promise you, when we stand on the other side of Christ's return, when you stand with both feet rooted in eternity and pain-free existence in front of you, we're going to look back on these seasons of suffering, even if 2020 goes down in history as the worst year of our lives, we're going to look back on that and it's going to be like a blink And that's a really important thing to keep in mind. Those seasons that we go through that feel so consuming, in hindsight, they're so brief. Now place that against the backdrop of eternity and the entirety of your life, no matter how long it lists, is going to feel like a blink. That's why the poets of Scripture speak of life as a vapor. It is here and it's gone. And the more we can fight to maintain that perspective, the healthier and more accurate our view of suffering will actually be. We have to remember what awaits us, and we have to remember this is momentary. And then finally this, number three, is remember there is purpose. 
remember there is purpose. Look at verse 7. So Peter comes out of verse 6 where he said, you rejoice in this, even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials, so that, so here's the purpose in the suffering, so that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which though perishable, is refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though not seeing him now, you believe in him and you rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy because you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now, tell me if this is not true. One of the questions we ask most frequently when we suffer is almost always why. God, why would you allow me to feel this? God, why would you allow me to hurt like this? I'm reading through Job in my own reading right now, and that's a question that Job's asking over and over again. God, why? Why have you, why have you allowed this? Why is this happening? And in a very real sense, what's awesome about these verses is that Peter answers the question for us. God's very good, but albeit uncomfortable goal for suffering is the refining, the strengthening, and the proving of our faith. Now, we may not like that, and we may not appreciate the way that it feels, but it doesn't mean that that's not the very purpose for which God intends these trials that Peter speaks about here. See, a trial, in the sense that Peter uses it here, it's a test to see if something can, can stand up to strain. And so Peter uses the metaphor of gold being refined by fire which burns off any of the residual imperfection, and that's something that God does in us as we walk through suffering. It's over and over again referred to like fire that is purifying our faith. Another way to think about it would be like a furniture company that uh, designs a new chair. Unless they are horribly negligent, all new designs are going to be tested to ensure that they can uphold the strain of being sat on, Right? So, so whether they test it by having people sit on it to make sure it doesn't break or they have a sophisticated machine trial that runs a battery of tests on it, ensuring its strength, they're going to test it to make sure that it can stand up to strain. And this is one of the ways that God uses trials in our lives. But here's the irony. We always want someone to test our furniture, but we don't like it when God tests our faith. And so, what we have to decide is this. Do we care more about being comfortable now or about growing a genuine faith that will carry us into eternity? Because we may not like it, but you can't do both. There is no comfortable sanctification. There's no comfortable growth in holiness. The sin, the impurity, the brokenness in us that is being healed and refined and burnt away, it's horribly uncomfortable. And so we have to wrestle with, do we want to be comfortable now or do we want to build a faith that is genuine to carry us into eternity? Are we willing to surrender to God's purpose in our suffering if it means the salvation of our souls like Peter just said? And I think this is such a critical question for us to consider right now. And as we start to wind down here, I want to press us 
for a second. Not, not you as an individual, but just us collectively and allow the Spirit to, to work on each of our hearts individually. But, but before I say what I'm about to say, I really want to make sure my heart and intention are clear. Everything that I'm about to say flows from a place of loving concern and not an ounce of condemnation. But I want you to know that it is not the job of a faithful pastor to make people feel comfortable all the time. I hope you know that. So if you go to a church and every sermon you hear, you just walk away going, mm, that felt like a hug. <laughs> it's a, not a good church, okay? And it was not a great sermon. Because I, when I think about what my responsibility is, other than the unbelievable glimpse into my dance abilities that you get to see every once in a while, <clears throat> my, my responsibility is to be our chief truth teller. And, and I don't know if you've learned this about truth, but truth is oftentimes not very comfortable. And so in the midst of that, I want to be very, very clear that that comes from a desire to love because of concern. And so that being said, this is a good point to tuck in your toes because I'm going to step on them for a minute. If our prayer requests and so many of the conversations that I've been having are any indication the disruption of this season is exposing significant cracks in much of our faith. I'm hearing so much right now from people about how God just feels absent. We're not experiencing him in the day-to-day. -day. We're not certain that he cares. Some of us have gotten to the point where we're starting to wonder, man, is he, like, is he even real? More and more, I'm, I'm, I'm hearing from people, you know what, I'm not, I'm not certain what to do with certain sections of Scripture and what they might indicate about the character and nature of God. And so what's happening is this trial that we're all in as a world right now, but as our, just, our church community at Ridgeline, our, this trial is testing our faith, and many of us feel like we are getting a big fat F. And, and as I mentioned last week, all that's happened this year has caused me to ask big questions too. And one of the questions that I've been reflecting on is, man, what exactly is God trying to use this stew of struggles that we're all experiencing? What is he trying to use that in order to expose in modern Christians in general? And here's one more thing I am more and more confident is being exposed. The average follower of Jesus in our culture has largely been content to allow the Sunday service to mediate their relationship with God. And that's a major problem. Like, I, 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 I think Sunday worship is so important. I love you. I can't believe what some of you miss Sunday worship for. So make no mistake, like, I, I, have, I put a very high priority on Sunday worship. So don't hear me saying, like, oh, Sunday worship's not, no, it's super important. I give a huge sum of my week to preparing for it, but what I'm concerned about is the depressing number of disciples of Jesus that have virtually no regular practice of sitting with God for themselves. Instead, we've been content to come on Sundays. Maybe we even serve and give faithfully, but we've been largely content to come on Sundays, listen to a sermon, sing some songs, have our faith stirred, and then head off into the week largely unconcerned with and uncommitted to walking with God through the day-to-day -day of life. And the problem is that works until you get hit with a pandemic and you have to cancel worship. 
And so here, here's, here's what I, like, Jesus never intended the worship service to be the sole source of your spirituality. He intends intimate relationship with you. And so quite honestly, the more we talk, the more I'm shocked that some of us are not doing worse, believe it or not. Because I just compare it to what my experience has been, and, and this year has been hell for me. And I have worked hard, not perfectly, but I have worked intentionally to walk with God through this. And so I meditate on scripture and I listen to his voice and reflect on what he's saying to me. I'm talking with him about that. And I'm talking to my therapist and processing with a spiritual director and living honestly with the community that God has put me in. And I'm still struggling in light of all of that. And so I don't say any of that to gloat. Okay, because things like that, when we gloat about spiritual practice in our lives, almost nothing sounds dumber than that. So I don't say any of that to gloat. My point is, if I'm trying to be intentional and I'm still struggling to the degree that I am, you shouldn't be shocked if you're not doing any of that and you feel like your faith is a mess right now. Because I just keep thinking about this question this week. What exactly did we think was going to happen if we neglected to spend regular time with God? Did we really expect our relationship with him to thrive in the midst of that, especially in the absence of our regular experiences of community and worship on Sunday mornings? What did we think was going to happen? No relationship. It doesn't matter what kind, whether it's relationship with one another or relationship with God. No relationship thrives apart from intentional investment. And so what that means is, If we want verse 8 to be true in our lives, that even though we have not seen Jesus, we love him, though not seeing him now, we believe in him and rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy. If we want that to be true, we have to take responsibility for cultivating an actual relationship with him that, listen, is supplemented by Sunday worship but is not sustained by it. And that is a massive difference. And so I just want to encourage us with a very simple step in that direction that I am confident every single one of us can do this week. I want to invite you to commit to read and reflect every day on just one paragraph of 1 Peter. Not the whole, not the whole letter, not, not even a whole chapter, just one paragraph. I know some of you are so busy, and if you cannot find time to read one paragraph... It's time to reorient some priorities in your life. So one paragraph a day. We're going to read one paragraph. We're going to ask God, show me something. Say something to me. Help me see something. Help me to be encouraged or challenged or convicted or stabilized. Something. So we're going to do that. And then the second step is going to be to text whatever it is that God has shown you or said to you to someone else in your life. This is something that many of us have practiced in the past. It's been incredibly helpful for two reasons. One, it helps keep us accountable to what we've committed to. And then secondly, we get to encourage one another because what God says to you is different than what God says to me. And then I get to hear both. And so that's what we're going to do. As a simple step to rely on more than just the 30 minutes that I speak to you on Sunday. It's not enough. It's just not enough for us. We have to walk with God for ourselves. 
And I think that is the, the biggest area of deficiency that God is revealing, not just in our church, but I just think in Christians' lives in general. Many of us are just not walking with God. Doesn't mean that we're not Christians even. It doesn't mean that we don't love God, but there's a dip, like, but it might mean we're not really walking with him. And we have to learn to walk with him. Otherwise, what are we doing? That's what I keep thinking. What are we doing? God wants so much more, not just from you. He wants so much more for you. And we're just content with a sermon? I think I'm okay, but not that great. We just need more than that. You don't need to hear my voice as much as you need to hear God's voice every day for yourself. And so please don't be content to just come here for that. Let this supplement what God's doing in you, but don't let it sustain you. The momentary suffering we experience, when we take it against the backdrop of eternity, when we take into consideration who God is and what God's doing, this momentary suffering in reality is actually such a small cost when we compare it with the gift of eternal salvation that awaits us. And so as you go through this week, do not forget what awaits you. And do not forget this is momentary. And do not forget that your suffering is not wasted. There is purpose in it. God is doing something in you. It's for a reason. And it needs to happen for your good. So we sort of just need to fall into the pain. And it's okay for us to not understand everything. It's okay for us to have questions. It's okay for us to doubt. God's big enough for all of that, but we just need to fall into it and be like, God, have your way. Do what you want to do. And so let's labor to that end. I know it's hard. And so let's pray and ask that God's spirit would help us. Can we do that? Bow your heads with me. Father, even when we, when we read your word and you are clear in places like the verses we've read this morning about the purpose for which you intend so much of what we experience, we, we might be able to conceive of that at kind of the 30,000 foot view, but we don't always understand like, but yeah, but why did I have to feel this now? And so Lord, I pray for any of us that might be feeling that right now and wrestling with that, would you just help us to let go of that question and to choose trust? Lord, we need this living hope that comes to us through the resurrection of Jesus. And so, Lord, only you fully know the state of every heart listening this morning. And I, I pray that if anyone doesn't truly know you, maybe even has been doing a great job at going through the motions, but has not really surrendered their life to you by faith, has not experienced the gift of new birth, I pray that your spirit would impart that now. Draw us to yourself. Lord, we want to walk with you more faithfully. For so many of us, the last six months have been marked by the deconstruction of our faith. And I pray that the next six would be marked by the strengthening, the solidifying, and the purifying of it. I pray that we would walk with you so much more closely in the six-month 
to come than we have in the six months prior. Lord, we know that you can lead us forward in that, and so I pray that you would. I pray that we just open to 1 Peter individually this week. God, speak to us every day. Help us to see something every day. Refine us every day. Teach us to actually walk with you, Lord. We thank you that we have one another, and we thank you for the gift of being able to gather like this again, even though the form is different. Lord, we thank you that we can come together for this. But Lord, would you please help this to be supplemental to our individual communion with you. Don't let it be the sum of it. We need your help in all of this. Encourage us, challenge us, shape us, and change us. In Jesus' name, amen.